welcome to the More to the Story podcast and the Thinking is Good for You podcast. We are coming together here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. We're, we're in one of our classrooms here for a special edition. We're joining forces. But before we do that, we want to make sure you know that this podcast is sponsored by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And that happens through a variety of programs as we help people develop uh, pastoral skills and ba with bachelor's, master's, and doctorate programs. And we have several lay initiatives. One that I want to make sure you know about is the Wesley Institute. It's a program that walks people through every book of the Bible with seminary professors over a nine-month period. Both Steve and I teach in that program. And we have a second version of that program as we've had people who have graduated from Wesley Institute 1. Now they're in Wesley Institute 2. And that is one that walks through the essence, uh, like not the essence, but like kind of essential elements of theology. And this is kind of at a Sunday school, lay level. It's been a great program to help church leaders, lay leaders become more focused in their learning. So we're really thankful for that. You can check out information about this at Wesley Biblical Seminary at wbs.edu. All right, we have a special program for you today, and I am delighted to welcome to our various podcasts. Well, first, let me just welcome my shared podcaster here, Dr. Steve Blakemore, professor of Christian thought at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Steve. Great, great to be here today, be with you again. We've done a couple of other uh, joint endeavors before, but it's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, and we'll welcome in from the American Family Association, M.D. Perkins. M.D., welcome to the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Well, uh, we want, we'll be able to talk about some of the work that you've done before as a filmmaker, but there's two particular documentaries you've done that are just beautiful. My family was watched them last night. I needed to make sure to get it in, and I just got my copies. But did, why don't you just tell us about those two documentaries before we get into the two books that AFA has recently published? Sure. So uh, the first documentary that we did, um, you know, kind of our big documentary on the authority of Scripture is called The God Who Speaks. Yes. Um, so it, it, it traces the evidence for the Bible's authority um, through pastors, scholars, apologists, you know, answering the, the questions that people have about the scriptures, you know, how do we get them? How do we know that we can trust them? How do we know that this truly is God's word for us and what God intended for us to have? So that's, uh, that's a documentary uh, that we did um, called The God Who Speaks. And then there's In His Image, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, is about delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality. So, you know, when you take the scriptural authority question and then you begin to apply it then to this question of gender and sexuality, you know, how does that start to look? So it's it's building not only just the biblical case, right. but also talking about obviously the things that are happening in the culture and society, you know, the ways that laws have changed and, and there's this promotion of the LGBT movement overall. But also the the stories of hope and transformation Amen, yeah. that uh, you know when the Lord gets a hold of somebody's soul and is able to to bring new life there and what that can look like and the hope that there that there is in Christ for uh, for believers. So Amen. Oh, they're they're beautiful. Now American Fam the American Family Association and American Family Radio. Some people probably have listened to it and maybe they don't know that that's what they're listening yeah. to. But this is a, a national. Uh, platform. Tell us a little about AFA. Yeah, so AFA is a uh, pro-family ministry started in 1977 by okay. Donald Wildman. He was a Methodist minister who was concerned about uh, morality and media and just the overall decline of um, of um, the as it, as it was displayed on on television. You know, mm -hmm. in the 70s. You know, network television and the kinds of things that they were showing on the programs. And so, you know. 
part of what's unique about him is that he didn't just turn off the television or talk about it among his church. He also, you know, would write a press release and send it around to the local media outlets and try and stir up this interest and conversation around the issues of the way that um, the, the way that society had been in, impacted, yeah. you know, by television at that point, but also going beyond that to some of the secular humanism issues and, and, and broader issues in our culture and society. So, I mean, American Family Association located in Tupelo, Mississippi, it's been uh, a stalwart defender of, of Christian values and the family and um, standing against a lot of the cultural onslaught since sure. since it was founded by Brother Don back in 77. Okay. And how many stations does the radio I believe there's have? over 180 stations wow. of, of, of American Family Radio. Yeah, the, the radio component came on in the early 90s and uh, I'm working on a documentary on Don oh, Wildman and the history of AFA. So. I've got a lot of those those information points at the ready, but uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Now, the in his image documentary is so mm -hmm. strong, and that led to the two books we're going to talk about today, in part, yeah. like even your own personal research yeah. and AFA's approach. Let me just say, uh, I want to encourage people to check out in his image, and you can probably just Google in his image AFA, and you yeah. probably get it. Um, this we just found out you can't it's not just on youtube you have to sign up at least to get it right there's several ways that you can access okay. it in his image movie is the easy place to go it's the main website okay. for it um, and it's still available to stream on there you can go to the afa streaming platform so afa.streaming.net i believe is the address and uh, you can have access to a lot of other afa's material but also if you're trying to find something to share with a friend or something it is available for free on YouTube, okay, okay. and that's a great way to, you know, post it on somebody's social media account or someone who doesn't want to sign up, you know, for something because they're afraid of a Christian ministry or something, but they still want to, yes, you know, yes, access yes. the content. You know, the YouTube link is a great, okay. is a great way to do. And that. it's also like a you have it as DVD. Exactly. Yeah. Believe it or not, I actually put a real DVD and a DVD player in my house last night and was looking at that, just seeing this video. And it's really interesting. It's a great resource. And I found out that you have over 500,000 views, 70,000 people have this DVD set. So it's a great ministry. And we're going to talk about some of this today. And the first resource I want to talk about, we have two books. One that AFA has put out called The Prodigal Prayer Guide. And this is scripture-based prayers for the prodigal in your life. Now, this, this is dealing with the same issues of human sexuality. Right. So um, tell us a little bit about what's in this book and like the purpose of this. And, and, and honestly, like some people might already be resistant because maybe they know about well, the type of things that I've put out. And maybe the AFA as well, even the fact that we're willing to stand up and say some of these type of things about scripture, about sexuality, maybe they're already resistant. But I think this show, this book shows the heart of AFA. In the sure. Of yeah. And, and, you know, that was important for us with the documentary, that it wasn't just bearing witness to things that were happening in the culture or just, just um, you know, kind of almost um, in isolation declaring the truth but it was intended to be applied to, the, to individual people and to be a source of hope and compassion because we did want to, there are so many people who are dealing with these issues and they're personal questions, personal issues that are happening there in, in people's homes and their friendships and things like that. And so that's really where the prodigal prayer guide kind of came from because, um, you know, so in the documentary, in his image, there's a story of Laura Perry, okay. who was, uh, she lived as a transgender man. She was born as a woman, was living as a man um, for, for eight or nine years, 
And over the, the course of this time, you know, her mom was involved in the church and her mom kind of had a very legalistic, just kind of going through very active in the church, but not necessarily spiritually minded. Yeah. And through this whole tension of relationship with her daughter, her mom is, is kind of given a, a new perspective on things and is becoming dependent on the Lord and starting to, to seek Him in prayer and in the scriptures and all these things in a way that she hadn't prior. And in God's mercy, you know, the daughter is, is brought in and, uh, and is repentant and has faith in Christ and, you know, is able to overcome a lot of the, the anxiety and, and dysphoric feelings and things like that that she had experienced. But one of, the, one of the sweet means of grace that God used in their life was that there was this group of, of women that her mom was, was uh, you know, a part of, this, this Bible study group, and they had a prodigal prayer box. Hmm. And um, so just, you know, all, all of these women knew somebody in their life, a child, grandchild, you know, niece or nephew or somebody who was straying from, from the Lord, who, um, you know, needed prayer. And they started to write information about that, put it, put it in a box so that they could pull that out and, and pray through those requests on a regular basis. And it was through, and with the hope of praying people out of the prodigal prayer box, you know. Mm, okay. and, uh, and so that's where these prayers come from. You know, uh, Laura Perry, Francine Perry, and one of the other ladies who was part of that group okay. um, took, uh, took scripture verses and, and, and the Bible's promises and um, are just like personalizing them for, for this child or for this situation. And so that's what the prodigal prayer guide is. It's, it's just a way to help help parents and grandparents pray through, um, you know, the, the situations with their children and grandchildren who have strayed from the Lord that you hope to see, you know, brought back and restored. At some Amen. Point, so. Stephen, that a little controversial that we would actually say something like people could be brought out and restored? What do you think? Well, yes, that would be uh, controversial. But the only reason it's controversial is because uh, there's a particular sort of... Uh, I hate to use such a big word, but a particular kind of metaphysical view of human existence that has begun to shape uh, psychology, and then it's filtered its way into the church. Mm -hmm. And the metaphysical view is this, there is no essence of right. what it means to be a human being. Right. The metaphysical view says we are essentially not defined and we're self-creators, mm -hmm. and therefore that spills over into into psychology uh, and, and that psychologists and the schools of psychology have embraced this idea that whatever is emerging out of someone's sense of identity um, is what that person really is. And then Christians don't know how to think about that because Christians basically love, or we're called to love people, even the, even the sinner, we're called to love them. But um, so it's controversial. It's controversial downstream of a lot of things that happened way upstream. Right. And um, it's right. But we forget that everybody's sense of themselves, everybody's sense of identity, is a product of forces that shape you. And not every force that shapes you is benign or beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so people can be shaped by experiences, by, by. Uh, cultural attitudes, by cultural values, uh, even by uh, environmental factors that can cause someone to go haywire chemically. 
Um, so it, it gets to be controversial, but it's controversial because people just have this completely wrong idea, first of all, of what it means to be a human being. Mm. And then secondly, the idea that if, you, if we're calling on people to think about the possibility of their lives changing, somehow that seems like an angry rejection of their person right, right. versus a loving invitation to come into health, right? So there's a lot of reasons that Christians have, have fallen prey to, to, the secular, to secular ideas. And secular ideas play on Christian morality of love and goodness and kindness. But so it is controversial, but... Uh, uh, this is so good. And I love how this fits in with your research as a whole. Like, and you have a book coming out on the nature of the soul and what constitutes uh, how we exist as humans. But I love that you push it back to this idea of what is the essence yeah. of a person. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of the Charles Taylor idea that we end up thinking of meaning as it's either uh, discovered or created. And generally, like we fall in like the worldview of an essence that says we create our own meaning, we create our own reality, our own truth. That then stands in opposition instead of saying that something exists outside of us that we discover. Yes, and it's rather ridiculous that people push back against the idea of, of a reality that exists outside of me. Right. Especially a moral reality. But let's even take, take morality out of it right now. Some sort of ex. I'll use another big philosophical term, existential reality, something about the nature of existence itself that is stands in utter objective uh, reality beyond me. And right. people said people people reject that idea, and yet everybody has to live their lives on the basis of it. Mm. So when I talk <laughs> when I talk to people who, for instance, embrace um, transgenderism as an actually real thing, not a real phenomenon, right? There's a difference in the That's phenomenon right, yeah, yeah. versus transgenderism as a real thing. And they say, well, well, you're just imposing a worldview on people. You're imposing, imposing a set of values. And I look at them and I say, well, wait a second. You're saying that transgenderism is a real thing. And then if I don't acknowledge yeah, it that's right. as a real thing, I'm either stupid or I must be evil and I want to hurt people who don't line up with my value system. I said, you are assuming yourself that, you there is, that there is an objective reality. You just think the objective reality is 180 degrees different from the objective reality that, that uh, every culture that has ever existed on planet Earth basically has embraced. Right? That there are men and there are women. There are males that are females, and that can be expressed across a continuum of ways. You can have everybody from, I'll just use recent persons from my lifetime, you can have every kind of woman from Marilyn Monroe to Ellie Mae Clampett, but they're both women, right? right? You can have uh, Annie Oakley and uh, Florence Nightingale. You keep on choosing these women who use guns. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, so anyway, that, it, this essence thing is really, is really what's at the heart of it. Okay, I want to get this over to MD in a second. And th like, this is why, like, I love, you very pastorally talked about this, and, and, and that's what we want. We want to be able to have it. But it nevertheless is a revolutionary type of idea to say that 
if we really believe this, like this is the reality that we're affirming, we're going to say that the best for somebody is to not live in that. I mean, is that the suggestion from this book? Oh, like absolutely. that's why we're going to yeah. pray for that? Yeah, I mean, the prodigal prayer God obviously is looking toward that, uh, that hope of transformation and people, I mean, and obviously, you know, a prodigal can be in any situation. It doesn't have to be somebody who's embraced LGBT yeah, right, right, right. in itself, but, um, but it did come out of that focus because so many people have, have um, had that question and that, that issue partially because of that, that essence idea where someone is essentializing either trans identity or homosexual identity right, to the right. point where I am essentially biologically, intrinsically this way, and mm -hmm. you can't say anything against that. And once they start to embrace that identity, it's really hard to break out of that. And part, right, partially, right. I think, you know, the, the spiritual things that are at work within sexuality have something to do with that too, once mm -hmm, they start to mm -hmm. live out, you know, in, in that behavior and stuff too. But anyway, I think, you know, that's, there's a lot that's, that is tied into that. So I have know. two friends who I'm, I mean, I'm going to start using this prayer guide for. I have, I have a, you might know Terry Takel you know, that uh, Methodist evangelist, uh, he has his, uh, this most wanted journal. And I, you like have the people you want to come to Christ or come yeah. back to Christ. And so I have them on the most wanted list. And they're two people who are living, presenting yeah. as a different gender than they were from which well, they were born. Keep praying and, and pray the people out of that journal. You well, know? and they're, uh, and they're kind of, um, they might be watching this podcast too. So, and I, I hope that they do. And the, the idea is like, we want to move people in a different direction. Now, uh, anything else you want to say about the, the prayer guide and, e and even how we approach that before we move on to the next book? Well, I would just like to say this about the whole idea of praying for people. Right. right? Interesting. And inviting them to reconsider their sense of identity. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I want to link it to something that might not seem uh, directly related. But there's, there's also in our culture today this whole movement that's called body positivity. Right. Right. right which is about <coughs> very overweight people. Most, of, most Americans are overweight, but very overweight people being affirmed in their overweightness. Mm -hmm. That if you don't affirm them in their overweightness, you're actually devaluing them. You're hurting them because it's hard for them to do X, Y, and Z. But everything that we know medically, everything that we know medically, tells us that to approach people on the basis of body positivity is to affirm them into a way of existence that is profoundly unhealthy for them, right, right. leading to everything from everything to diabetes type 2 to um, acute and chronic inflammation that even can become brain inflammation that can lead to cognitive problems. And so everything we know on the objective level of science says, no, that's not right. So the same thing is true then, if there is a way that we are, that is most right for a human being to be, and it's the way God has designed us, to pray for someone to come out of a way of life that is contrary to what we understand to believe the, to be not only the most godly, but the most beneficial, the most healthy, the most full and robust and complete expression of the humanity. To do that is to actually engage in a, in a ministry of kindness, mm -hmm. a ministry Amen. of love, Amen. and yeah. a ministry of, of encouragement. 
But what they do is they people take it and they twist it and they say, oh yes, but initially everything that you're doing is hurtful. Right, it, right. It, 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 it challenges people's sense of identity. When in reality what's happening is people are saying through prayer, through ministries, through documentaries or whatever, no, there is a way that seems, that Jeremiah, I believe it is, there's a way that seems right to a man. And yet that way leads to destruction. Yeah. And the yeah. only way that is right is God's way. So it's Christians like us are motivated by love. Amen. Not hatred, not meanness, not rigidity. It's truly a motivation of love. And we have to keep that in mind too as we are present as we are talking and in conversation, that we try to approach it in a way that conveys the truth and love. Interesting enough, like you talk about the obesity piece, um, one of my friends who is presenting as another uh, gender, um, a woman, biological woman presenting as a man, uh, we've come in and offered uh, some people very active on my own post uh, from my social media pages and the like, and my very kind, loving mother-in-law got on and just simply said to this person, I'll... I'll be praying for you. And then there was this immediate reaction of saying, you're getting yourself in trouble by saying you're going to pray for me. I didn't ask for prayer. I didn't ask to, you, you are, you are almost like, like assaulting me. To Rather, there's no, that, that, that word was used, consent. Like I didn't consent to this. Whoa, are we going to regulate at that level now? I mean, this is a whole nother, a whole nother place of thinking about what, what we think and how we pray. So certainly, it's good for us to get in a place where we can pray for someone. I haven't invited you to think about my existence <laughs> in a way that's contrary to the way that I think about my existence. How dare you have a thought? That's right. This, this is where we are. Yeah. Anything else, Cindy? No. Okay, <laughs> I want to get this. I'm really encouraged by this. Encouraged, and also, honestly, MD, I'm a little... I come at this a little trepidation. All right, let's make a pivot here. I want to talk about this second book that you've written, MD, that's just come out, Dangerous Affirmation, The Threat of Gay Christianity. Now, some people will be resistant already that we're saying that something is a threat, but this goes back to our idea that if we're going to live in the truth and if truth comes from outside of us as revealed in the person of Jesus and our triune God and his work in space and time, if there is a truth, we want to lead people to that truth. It is ultimately in their good for us to lead them to that truth, and that's the only thing we can do. Um, so, I'm okay using the word threat, but it is hard because we've been resistant to this. And I want to just walk back a little bit to think about even the last 30 years or so of how the church has engaged the sexual revolution. And so we developed kind of some quick phrases that help us think about this in an orthodox way. So we'll say we, um, you know, we're not necessarily talking about somebody's orientation, but we want to talk about the behavior. We'll uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, and there's truth in that, but we want to be cautious with the way we use some of those words. But there's that the first phase of us was of the Christian response was was working through some of the more blatant areas of the sexual revolution. But in the last, I would think like 10 years or so, there's been a new movement that has maintained, as they would say, an orthodox position. And I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I think of people like Preston Sprinkle, um, his podcast, Theology in the Raw. He's an Old Testament scholar who's really kind of taken the forefront on what's often identified as side B. And somebody like Wesley Hill. But there's an, a willingness to embrace the orientation and then to say, as you say here, the threat of gay Christianity, to put 
um, that adjective in front of the word Christian. And there's, there's a challenge to that. And some people say, well, who are you to tell me what I can put in front of things? But I'm, I'm curious, like, this is, exactly, go back to our other point. I see her Steve laughing at me already. So AFA, American Family Association, and even Weston Biblical Seminary to a certain extent, um, like, we're starting to say we need to tap the brakes here. Uh, and you're saying this is a dangerous affirmation. Yeah. Help us know, like, maybe, maybe in some of the things I'm said are, I've said are a little off already. So I'd lo- love to hear what's led to this book. Yeah, so... Let's back up and think of what is gay Christianity. Okay. Um, so gay Christianity is the attempt to reconcile the Christian faith with homosexuality or the LGBT movement in some in some capacity. You know, the Christian faith is a collection of um, values, beliefs, and practices that the church has held, you know, mm-hmm. throughout her existence, defined by scripture that have guided, you know, our worship and our practice and, and our thinking on this. And um, obviously we know what the scripture says about homosexuality. And um, so, you know, when it comes to homosexuality, though, it, that's also a big topic, you know, because it's not just, it's not just a practice or uh, a behavior, you know, or even, a, you know, a desire or a predisposition or orientation, as some people have defined it. But it's also identity. It's mm-hmm. also vocabulary. It's also politics and culture and language and you know there's so many things that are connected to that idea that basically you have two counterpoint religions that have differing views of of reality and the self and even definitions of what is sin and righteousness Mm -hmm. you know so those things cannot be reconciled now you're saying homosexuality and so i've almost been resistant to that like we'll say homosexual practice right i mean this is what's been grilled into us uh, baked into us i'm not sure yeah you've got to make the distinction you know you've got to form the nuances what everyone keeps saying you know but i mean think about romans chapter one where it talks about dishonorable passions Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know like that's this is a passion that brings dishonor so like it's not even just talking about behavior you know obviously the behavior is wicked and wrong but you're also talking about the the sinful pattern of desire you know passion within the greek there the idea is like a you know something that befalls you you, you know it's not even necessarily something that you're seeking out but the the cultivation of it right, you know right. over time you know continues to engender that even more deeply inside a person so so um, it that it's dangerous to embrace that like that side of things and and what the and look, look, before we get into I want to drop drop back to that idea in a second, but maybe it'd be helpful to, to, to um, describe what the difference is between side A and side B. Right. Is. Okay. Yeah. So side A is what we would also call the affirming church. Okay. You know, that's pride flag in front of the church. You know, we're open and affirming. You know, those kinds of words being used, um, and the attempt there was usually to um, make the Bible somehow affirm homosexuality, homosexual behavior, gay identity, gay relationships, gay mm-hmm. marriage, all that. You know, so basically saying God made you this way, it's good, it's just part of his diverse creation, you know, and so we just need to celebrate that mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. Christians. And um, so that has been what most people I think have thought of when it comes to the idea of gay Christianity. Right, right. You know, they just think of the affirming church. But there is a newer movement like you were alluding to, this whole side B position. And where that comes from is people who've grown up within an evangelical conservative church space and then, um, you know, had some kind of homosexual temptation or desire. And then they thought, well, I, I know that this is what the Bible teaches, but I also know that 
I'm a Christian, I prayed for this to go away, it never happened, so therefore I am innately and immutably homosexual. And they've grown up not only um, in a conservative church, but also in a society right. that has been given over and is affirming and celebratory and, tell, and feeding all of, the, all of the language, all of the talking points about homosexuality, about all of those things is coming from the world. Everywhere, right? You know, like from our you know, television to clubs at school. Yeah. And there's just like, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, I brought it up with my kids. And there's just, we can't even say it to our kids. Like, there's just an assumption that that's what it has to be. So that side B kind of comes the way to straddle the fence here. It is, we're... yeah. It's, it's presented as kind of a third way, kind of a middle ground. You know, mm -hmm. we're not... We like middle grounds, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So <laughs> we don't want to say either or, right? Yeah, we don't... Yeah, yeah. it's a both and, you know. <laughs> like, so we want to say that... Uh, so what they're saying, essentially, is that, um, that you can have this gay identity, that there is a, somehow, essentially, that you are a homosexual, and that that cannot change. And, you know, it might change in a miraculous instance, but... You know, as one one um, side B author puts it, you know, we don't expect for waters to be parted, you know, as a, as a matter of course, mm, you know. So like they don't put it in the realm of Christian sanctification and growth in godliness, and as you are conformed more to Christ's likeness, yeah. that you you begin to desire the world less, and you live like the world less, and even your desires and and temptations change right. through that, you know. So yeah, it's it's a problematic thing because it it poses a threat to not just to uh, individual Christians who are struggling mm -hmm. because it does pose that. And it offers essentially, I would say, no hope, mm. you know, no hope of transformation, no hope. Right, of right, right. You know, you just have to find a way to steward your sexuality is how is actually the phrasing that they'll use. And they'll even use things like in, in this side B side, they'll often use things to say that this is a gift for the way I look at the world. And this is coming from like we're saying that this is a part of the fall. Like uh, you, you allude to Romans 1. Um, if that's the case, if we're saying that we're celebrating this way that I'm disoriented in the world. This is this has some ramifications. And then, you know, the Revoice Conference, which is the kind of flashpoint or the clearest way that the side B has demonstrated itself, um, would even have something like a conference that has uh, queer treasures in the new creation. Right. So there are things that have been discovered within queer world. I'm sorry if I'm not using the right word, like in, in that expression that is going to be yeah, a part of the new heavens and the new earth. It's basically this idea that all things in culture are inherently neutral mm. and that you can you can embrace certain aspects of that. And so there are certain things that, you know, are part of queer culture that they would say, you know, are part of uh, part of the the recreation and part mm -hmm. of the the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's interesting that somebody like Rosaria Butterfield has talked about how hospitality was a beautiful part of her experience and what brought her in to um, the homosexual community was just the community that she felt. And then she's written a book about how Christians need to do better at community. Right. I mean, so is that not an example of one of those things that there, uh, the LGBTQ culture is doing that maybe Christians should learn from? Right, and that's, you know, Part of the issue there is the feeling of isolation mm -hmm. that someone feels when they have those experiences and temptations, you know, yeah. and a lot of that internalized, like feeling like I can't talk to someone or if I do, I'm going to get yelled at or like God's mad at me or like I can't talk to my pastor, that kind of thing. And so like there is a, a gentleness and a friendliness that she's referring to there with the uh, with the hospitality thing that 
that Christians do need to be aware of. You know, I mean, we do combat. We do have to bear witness to the truth in the in a secular and godless culture. Right. You right. know, but at the same time, you know, when you have these relationships with people, you know, to to have a spirit of gentleness and and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. loving, you know, you're wanting to. You know, it isn't necessarily trying to get them to to change their language right away. You know, it's like understand where are you coming from, what 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 happened, what's part of your background. You know, and I want to understand that so that I can not just love you as a sentimentality, mm-hmm. but like the Christian is always the love that we show has that objective toward growing you in Christ likeness. Yes, you know, yes. and hoping to point you toward Jesus. You know, so that's that's our goal and our aim. So it's never just like this passive love, like we just are together singing Kumbaya, but it is a, a sanctifying hope that we have right. in those interactions. So that's that's where I would throw the balance in because the, the revoice kind of thing is supposed yes. to present kind of this alternate community of like the church doesn't understand us or get us and they're just mad at us. And so we're coming together because we're the only ones who can understand each other. So we're going to have real community and fellowship here. And that's why the, sometimes a movement is just not through revoice. It's also called the spiritual friendship right. movement. Now, there is something really valuable, of course, that we can learn from the spiritual friendship group is that we want to encourage people who are single to have opportunities to have deep friendships and we need to as a church be responsible for that so i'm very welcoming of that idea like i want to figure out ways that as a church and as a somebody served for the pastor for 15 years creating an environment and a culture for that but what comes along with it is is where it gets a little problematic within the spiritual friendship how movement so how does the spiritual friendship side um move in a dangerous way well it, it begins to embrace certain things that um you know, for instance, it, it loves to talk about chaste um, physical affection, you know, and immediately when you're having to use the word chaste, you're already alluding to something that right, right. is potentially problematic in the, the physical affection that you're trying to show. And so, you know, talking about like men getting together and snuggling together or people have even talked about doing nudist colonies and things like that wow. as a way to help them overcome the fact that they've they're committed to the celibate life and so that they can kind of play on the edges are you serious Dave? like i've talked about having christian nudist colonies of people who experience same-sex attractions okay and like the idea is they're not crossing the line right like okay we're not having sex that was something that ed shaw put out on livingout.org um you know several years ago one more thing and then i want to get steve into this um the five years ago there was a a group of Christian leaders that came together from a variety of denominational perspectives. And there were people from Wesley Biblical Seminary that were a part of signing the Nashville Statement, which had an article, they had a, we affirm, we deny, in a variety of these articles. And one of the things that they brought up was uh, kind of addressing the spiritual friendship movement and the idea of embracing uh, disordered identity as problematic. Well, even just uh, since it's been five years, there is a call, and I saw that you highlighted this, of people saying, you need to repent if you sign this statement. Well, I signed that statement. What do, what do you think? Talk about the, the Nashville statement, how it interacts with this. Well, the Nashville statement was basically a, a consensus statement. You know, it was intended as just a clear kind of rallying cry point for Christians in light of two years after Obergefell. You know, so right, this is like... Right, right 
August 2017, you know, so Obergefell happened June 2015. So a couple of years later, in light of the decline that's happening in culture, the way that churches, in light of that Supreme Court decision, you think politics doesn't impact the church. Right, sure. It always does in terms of especially people's just general perception and willingness to go along with things. So they were starting to see some of those shifts and movements. And so a, a broad spectrum of the evangelical church got together, wanted to codify a statement on biblical sexuality. And it addressed, um, you know, it, it addressed transgenderism within it. It addressed, um, you know, this, this idea of gay self-conception, which was the Article 7 that, mm -hmm. uh, that guys like Nate Collins, who founded Revoice, had a real issue with right, right. and, um, you know, pushed back on. So it, you know, in some sense, I think it did highlight a fracture point that was already there within evangelical churches. It just wasn't very visible to that point. But it really brought that stuff up to the surface in yeah. a way that hadn't had an opportunity to really before because awesome. everything was kind of connected together. Right, right. We're, we're still kind of learning to express the boundaries of this. Now, I'm not sure what Steve's going to say next, but I know I want to hear from him. So, uh, I mean, Steve, I don't know sure if you like, you, you and I haven't had too many conversations about what, what's coming with gay Christianity or side B, but I'd really love to hear what you think. Because, you know, you've taught classes on um, these subjects, and particularly how we view with, how we think about the self and the image and what makes us up as people. Yes. So. Well, what I find incredibly, it's both interesting and depressing about our culture. For me, is I mean, I've been around for a pretty long time now. I mean, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not comment on that. I'm not getting any younger. I'm not at. I'm not at midnight yet, but I am in the late afternoon of my okay. life. Okay. Okay. I, I recognize that, and uh, across ac across the, the course of my life, I have had multiple homosexual friends, mm -hmm. and I had fairly close friendships with them, and time and again. Um, until they walked away, I was able to just continue to say, I love you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but your life is not what God wants for you. Now, the thing that I find so interesting is, is this profound move that, that began, it probably began right after world, uh, let's put it this way, sexual promiscuity has always been a problem in human life. Always been a problem in human life. So you go back to the ancient Roman world or the ancient Greek world. Bisexu what we would today call bisexuality, which was essentially married men carrying on uh, sexual trysts with younger men. But they were actively uh, engaged with, as a married man with children and they would also have these homosexual, uh, what we call homosexual attractions. And I, so that's been a part of, of life forever. Sexual promiscuity in terms of multiple sexual partners has always been uh, rife throughout human existence. Even the Victorian era, people often look back, the Victorian era was probably as uh, disgustingly sexual <laughs> In its, in its um, promiscuity as any, as any other time. There's no golden age. But what has happened since probably after World War II, and that was, I'm not that old yet. Okay, okay. But I'm, I'm old enough to know people who knew the world 
right after World War II, but surely from the time I was born in the 50s up through the 60s into the 70s, what began to take place was the idea of sex, sex as an identity maker. So it's, it's, an, it's an identity maker, and then it became an identity marker. Mm-hmm. And so the whole sexual revolution in the, in the, began in the 50s with Kinsey into the 60s, then in the 70s, and then in the 80s. Sex, your sexual life was an identity marker. And it became inherent to the expression of your selfhood. Now that, that's a profound, profound shift to, to no longer think about sex as an activity that is central to human existence. Instead, to be beginning to think about sex as that which marks and makes your identity. Right. That's a huge right, shift in right, right. cha- shift. And so people like uh, Charles Taylor and um, um, the Carl Truman, as they talk about the way the sense of self develops, it's not just because an ideology took, out, took, took over, but a way of living, values that were presented to us. So that's been a profoundly interesting thing to observe. And today, therefore, we have the idea of sex and, and our sexual attractions as the essential, the essential thing that makes us something. So Yeah, um, interesting. So th- that's what enters into this conversation then about how we, how, the, how we could ever have somebody who would call themselves a gay Christian. Yes, and so, so if you say, I am a gay Christian, okay, what power, what role, what effect does that adjective have on the noun, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? What if I were to describe myself and say, I am a white Christian? Right. People are going to get very troubled about that, right? Oh, that means you are a person who sees your whiteness as central to your Christianity, which is therefore exclusive of others. How does a gay Christian, how is a gay Christian going to argue that their, their adjective is far more benign mm-hmm. than, than that, right? So I would say instead, instead of talking about people saying I'm a gay Christian, the better way, the more precise way, if they want to be faithful to Christianity, is to say, I am a Christian, a devoted follower of Jesus who has surrendered my entire sense of identity to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as He has revealed to us in the Scripture. Mm -hmm. And my central temptation, the besetting sin in my life, is this attraction. Right. Now, that's a mouthful. Well, exactly. So let me just jump in there. But so, that, that's more precise. It is certainly more precise. So Wesley Hill would say, and I've heard him say on other interviews, is uh, in maybe the leading voice in this, I just can't say all that. I'm just going to say gay Christian. And I would say, well, if you can't say all of that, then you're not speaking precisely. Mm-hmm. And if you don't speak precisely, people can make out of your language anything they want to. Mm-hmm. So you owe it to people to speak precisely. And if you don't have time to speak precisely, keep your mouth shut. Wow. (laughs) 
that's tell me how you feel. That's, that's not just oh, true. Good. That's not true just about that kind of argument. No, it's true for Christians across the board. For Christology. Yes, we you know, need like to, our, we need to keep Trinity. our mouths shut sometimes if we don't have time to to speak clearly and thoroughly and precisely because these are deep life forming or malforming, deep life enriching or impoverishing conversations that mm -hmm. we have. And so these little catchphrases and this little bumper sticker way of thinking about conversations over true things, that itself is a sign of our fallenness. Yeah. Now let me shift just a second about in terms of what I've said about um, sexuality as, a, as, a, as something that is an identity maker. Okay. People look back at like the book of Leviticus chapter 18. And that's where he says, have sex with this person, but not with this person. Mm -hmm. Don't have sex with this person. Don't have sex with this kind of person. Don't have sex. And people look at it and they say, oh, that's just a whole lot of rules. But what if the thing that's driving Moses in understanding the revelation of God and listing all these things is basically something much more profound than just who should you engage your genitals with? Mm -hmm. But instead, yeah, it's yeah. a statement about Human beings made in the image of God, right? God is three persons. God, God is this fellowship, if you will. Human beings made in the image of God are made not just for God, and we're not simply individuals, but we are made by a multiplicity of kinds of relationships. So, yes, I need, I, my identity is partially made by and significantly made by my sexual relationship with my wife. But my identity is also made by my relationship with my sons. Mm -hmm. My identity is also made by my relationship with my brother and my sister. And by my academic dean. Yeah, and academic dean and my friendships and women who are nothing more than friends to right, me. Right, right. Men who I have such deep affection for that some people would say, well, that's a sign of that you're having a bromance with them. But once again, that's just another term to confuse things. But such a deep affection for that has nothing to do with sexual attraction. All of these things enrich it. We need all of these kinds of relationships. But in our culture, the idea of male-to-male -male friendship or female-to-female -female friendship has been infected by this idea that if those kind of attractions are intense enough, they, they, ought, they, they will inevitably trigger sexual desire and therefore, that sexual desire will be a part of your identity. I just find that an impoverished way right, to think right, about right. human existence. So this is why it's so important is that what we're saying is it's not good enough just to say anymore. Like we need more clarity, more nuance, more thinking about orientation and behavior because these things are very connected. Yes, and that's what I like about what um, yeah, yeah, yeah. MD is doing in this book. He's, he's saying... It's, you know, you could, you could use any number of metaphors. You could say he's tapping the brakes, <laughs> or he's firing the flare, or... Sounding the alarm. He sounded the alarm, whatever metaphor. Blowing the trumpet. To say, wait a second, yes. wait a second. Yeah. There are consequences to embracing these things. I think that's really what you're trying to... Yeah, let's to get to that. Get so at, is it right? really a threat? I mean, it, uh, is gay Christianity, this perspective that's coming from side B, is it a threat? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and the ways in which it a threat, the ways in which it is a threat, um, 
vary, you know, depending on who you are. You know, for young children, you know, it's a thread in terms of shaping their ultimate thinking about sexuality and um, which also shapes how they view, um, you know, the Bible and, and all kinds of other things. You know, for pastors, the thread is, is toward one of, of silence or resistance or hesitancy to speak with the same level of, of forcefulness that the Bible does on this, but also with the same offer of graciousness mm -hmm. that the Bible does. You know, it, it tends to be an either-or scenario with the, the either tending toward the gentle, which means don't say much at all, you know. And then, um, you know, for, for just your average Christians, you know, it's, it's shaping how you are viewing the world. It's shaping how you view the scripture. It shapes the way that you um, interact with the world and the things that are happening in, in culture and society, you know, tending to shrink back from it, um, not wanting to say, not wanting to say clearly or definitively, you know, that certain things are wrong or certain things, you know, shouldn't happen. You know, so, I mean, the threat, and, and, and to go underneath that, it's not just that, that we have to say the right thing or think the right way. The point of that is because of the spiritual threat behind it all, mm. which is that there's an enemy that is seeking your soul, mm. and he's seeking to devour and steal and kill. And one of the ways that he does that is, is through this whole sexuality movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like there is a spiritual threat underneath all of, you know, we could think about the cultural threats or the theological threats or losing uh, clarity of language or any of that. And those are all very serious and real. But underneath all of those movements is, is that spiritual reality. And Christians have to keep that in their sights. You can't lose that right, because right. so much of this is an attempt to just move it into the realm of science or just move it into the realm of psychology as if the scripture and the spiritual life have nothing, nothing right, to offer. Right, right. It, it puts us in an interesting situation, dangerous situation. Steve, you are getting to a point there where you're thinking about what happens in Leviticus 18 and that it's more than just this physical response. What else is that, what, what is that pointing to? Well, you think about Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18, 19, 20, the purity codes. It starts out with sexu sexual things, but then it moves toward uh, things like sacrifice, right? Even child sacrifice and toward idolatry. And in each one of those instances, when, our sense, when, when you don't have this sense that there is an objective reality outside of me to which my life is called to conform, not as an imposition on me to rein me in, but as an invitation to me mm -hmm. to invite me into the vast vista of God's beautiful will and purpose for my life. When, when you don't recognize that there's the existence of this objective reality, then we can begin to define ourselves, uh, other people in relationship to ourselves, for ourselves, mm -hmm. out of ourselves, right, right. Which, is what, which is what sexual promiscuity always is, where everybody becomes a potential sexual partner for me. Right, right. You know, and the, the problem with, when, when you do that, 
And, and, you, and the, the side B kind of Christians want to say something like, well, this, uh, this way of, of desire is just the only natural expression of me that I know. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I want to stop and say, well, wait a second. Finding other females attractive... I'm an older guy now, you know, but I'm not dead. Finding other females attractive to the point that I could even be really sexually attracted to them. That's the only natural way I ever have ever known that I could be. So it's not, a, it's not uncommon then that out of this sense of starting with the self, there's a, now a new movement, even among some Christians, to begin to say, well, the next, the next le- legitimate step is to begin to affirm polygamy. Right, or sure. polyamory. So where, where does it start? And then, out of the sense of self, right, the sense of self and starting with the self, then your children right. among the Amalekites. What, what's the purpose of your children? The purpose of your children are potentially to benefit your life. So if you need to, uh, to sacrifice them to Moloch to benefit your life right now, great. Right. So abortion is our Moloch yeah, sacrament for sure, for sure. in the United States of America because children are now seen as either a blessing or a detriment according to how the parents valued them. And then we're also tempted to redefine God out of ourselves for ourselves. Right, right. And we will always make a God in our own image. Let me, let me just tack on one final thing here about, the, about this idea of of sexual identity, uh, sexual attraction, uh, and all of that. First thing is this. The most honest homosexual activists out there that I have read admit, and psychologists who are honest admit, that we have not really any clear-cut definitive clue as to what forms sexual attraction Mm -hmm. in human Mm -hmm. beings. We do know that there seems to be a correlation between some sort of disoriented uh, nature of the relationship of the same-sex parent, Mm. either an absence or or something that was harmful. There seems to be a correlation, but we don't even know if all of that's causative. But the idea that, that was put out 30 or 40 years ago, which was... Uh, re- uh, de- debunked shortly after that that there's some kind of gay gene or gay genetic uh, condition. Th- that, that is seeped into the culture, but it's seeped into the culture because the activists seized upon it in a very cynical fashion, know it's, knowing it's not true in order to promote their agenda. Right. Now, let me, the final thing I wanted to say was for Christians. We need to think about homo. I think we need to think about homosexual attraction that people wrestle with, um, in terms of a much a much more nuanced categories than we have, because we tend to go to the to the idea that it is sinful immediately. Okay. Yeah. That people are homosexual because there's something sinful in them. I say no. We become sinful in our actions because we are fallen. Right. We are broken. We are alienated, really, from the image of God. And we're alienated from what we really are. 
fallenness is not sinfulness. It is the precursor to sinfulness. We live in a fallen world. Okay. Our nature is fallen, and therefore we are subject to temptations that are the result of that fallenness, and to the extent, and I think MD mentioned this, to the extent that we begin to entertain them and to act upon them and allow them to begin to define us or guide our lives, then our actions do become sinful. Right, interesting. But one of the things that people resist is the idea that, oh, my sexual orientation is sinful. And what I say is that, no, not necessarily, but it is fallen. Right. It is right. a disordered d desire. So using that language is more helpful and like more precise to think yeah, of it. As, I think it's yeah. more theologically precise. And I think for a lot of Christians, if we could begin to realize that that homosexual, homosexuality is a sin. It's clear that it's, that it's sinful. And its practice and its expression is profoundly sinful. Mm. People are twisted in our lives, in our thinking, in our desiring, in our self-understanding because of our fallenness. Christ came not simply to take away our sins. He came to deal with our fallenness. He gives us the Holy Spirit to right. recreate us so that we can be what God wants right, us to be. Right. And if Christians could see then, and I bring all this up for Christians to realize that when you're standing for Scripture, you're not just making a moral stand. You're taking a stand for the healing of humanity. Awesome. Healing yes. and recreation into the image of God to, re to cure our fallenness Amen. Amen. so that sinfulness will not drive us. And, th and this is the approach that we take in our systematic theology courses here is that like we have it with this direct line of the reality and nature of the fallen world that leads us to sin. But then the great, the beautiful point, and you're, you're just starting to get there, is the restoration of that image. And like how that, uh, when we talk about sanctification, this privilege that all believers have to have the opportunity to experience a time in their life where the Holy Spirit is so present that you don't actually have to sin. This is the way that we experience the restoration of that image. And ultimately, in the new heavens if and I'm Lord, under, If I am understanding uh, what MD was saying about side B, the problem with the side B Christian Christianity is they don't recognize the extent to which fallenness is yes, a spiritual is problem. It. What do you think? Is that where we are? I, I think that's, a, that's an astute assessment. Um, you know, they speak in terms of fallenness, and they recognize they would link the um, orientation to fallenness, but, then, but it's still essentialized, yeah. you know. So it's, it's hard to move beyond that to where even one of them pontificates on perhaps, you know, God made a race of eunuchs that, uh, that he was intended to basically have this attraction, you know, from like pre-fall. Okay, you know, and, interesting. Uh, and, um, you know, Nate Collins speaks of an aesthetic orientation that God made him with a particular bent toward male beauty as opposed to female beauty, and that the, the fall just twisted that desire and made it sexual. But really, you know, the restorative thing for him is that it can become relational rather than sexual. But, you know, it's still, it, it's still all twisted up in a, in a weird kind of nuanced mix wow. of... <laughs> so, and, and there's not really any way that we can pull that from Scripture. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's all his own thoughts, you know, that he, he presents in his book, All But Invisible. 
Now, Steve was taking us through a little bit of the history of how we moved from this place of like sexual markers, sexual makers. Uh, gen and you, you in the very beginning of the book, though, talk about something that happened in 1968 in the church. Yeah. And tell us what that was and like how that set us on a trajectory. Well, the, the, the story I recount in the beginning of the book is on the founding of the Metropolitan Community Churches, mm -hmm. which was the first um, gay-affirming church group um, to exist in America. And, um, you know, it was founded by a guy who was a homosexual, and he wanted to kind of marry evangelical theology to some extent with, with um, homosexual activism mm -hmm. and, uh, and a full embrace of that. And so, yeah, that happened early, you know, the, the late 60s, you know, was the fir first meeting, and that's, a, that's an established denomination at this point. And obviously, you know, you see the expression of that same idea within a lot of the mainline conversations and the overall affirming church movement right. in general. I love, uh, Steve, I want to get you in here again. I, I love us to kind of tie things up here of thinking of what we can do now. Like, what, how do we respond um, to this cultural moment? Like, and what's your hope from the book? Like, where, where you want to see things go as a result of, like, Laying out this, as we said, this marker, this trumpet sound, this tap on the brakes to gay Christianity. Um, primarily, I want Christians to pay attention, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be aware of what's happening, to be aware of, to not just take on every piece of language that gets handed to us by secular culture and society. Yeah, yeah. And to then, because what, what tends to happen is we take it and then we put our little Christian twist on it that we think justifies it, makes it okay, and then we start using it. But we're using it in a different sense. You know, like you were saying, you know, the, the very clear need to be careful with our terminology and our language to speak more precisely. And if we can't speak more precisely, then maybe we don't need to speak at all mm. on that issue or on that topic, you know. Mm. And so just part of it is to help Christians understand, to think through it, to recognize that there is a threat, to see some of the ways that it is a threat, to see that illustrated, because I think some people think, well, you know, that, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to be a culture warrior. I don't want to be seen as combative, right. you know, and so helping to think through some of those issues, because the thing is, the culture warriors are there to warn you of the things that are coming down the line that are going to affect all of these other things, right. you know, downstream, whether you want to be on the front line of the picket line or not, you know, like you're going to be impacted by this downstream. Yeah. And so part of it is just to get Christians to think more robustly, hopefully, yeah. about sexuality beyond what they've just taken on from the culture. Yeah. Steve, what do you think? How do we think, think about that? Well, culture? first of all, it, it's not an accident that the Metropolitan Church uh, launched out of an expression of evangelical right. Christianity. Why do I say that? Evangelicalism made a profound mistake in rendering salvation as simply an interpersonal right. experience of a relationship with Jesus. In the 1970s, Tom T. Hall, the country musician, had a hit song that said, Me and Jesus got our own thing going. <laughs> Me and Jesus got it all worked out. We, me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. That is evangelicalism at its worst. Right. This kind of interiority of a relationship with God that doesn't touch necessarily other aspects of my life. 
but if there's anything we could, we could learn from the traditional Roman Catholic theology or the Eastern Orthodox theology, and even tr really traditional Protestant theology, it's this. We are not souls that exist in bodies, and therefore we have this spiritual side of us that can be right with God, but our bodily side can be disordered. Right. That's, that's Gnosticism. That's the ancientest, that's the ancientest, the most <laughs> ancient of all heresies that the church wrestled with. And we have to help people see that when we come to Christ, we are not coming to get an individualized, personal relationship with Jesus that will keep me safe and take me to heaven. But instead, we are entering into God's new creation, the rest restoration of God's original creation, mm -hmm. that Christ has come to make all things new by restoring what God always wanted things to be. Which, and therefore, for the church to, to overcome these, these threats... We have to move not away from the idea of my personal encounter with Christ that nobody can have for me, right? Nobody can have it for me, and I can't get it because my grandmama was a Christian or just because I, I you know, grew up in a Christian family or whatever. But instead, really following Jesus, belonging to Christ, being, living in the life of the Holy Spirit, that's the only identity maker mm -hmm. that there is Amen. that can lead us to life. Amen. And every other thing that we think is central to our lives, no matter what it is, no, no, even a patriotism. Right. <laughs> even, even our religion, even our denomination, yes, everything our institutions. has to be conformed to that image. Right. And so, and that's only going to happen if what M.D. hopes happens with his book, that Christians are going to start to think seriously deeply right. and wrong right. Right. about this particular threat right now. It, it could be a catalyst for something much deeper than simply uh, fending off this threat right now. Yes. But it needs to be something much deeper and much more comprehensive in the life of the church, I think. Well, and MD, our thanks to you for taking on this up and AFA for really coming after this topic because it's not just like, oh, we're just scared. I had somebody respond to me because I'm speaking out uh, toward my denomination about some of the tendencies I see in this direction. They said, well, Andy is just as he against, and they quoted me saying, against the gays being a part of the Salvation Army. Whoa, no chance. That's, I, those words never came out of my mouth. But what we're trying to do is say, let's, we're a part of a bigger story. And our, uh, you're hitting on this, our bodies are, are the reality of creation is a part of God's story. It tells what God is doing in the world, and our, our sexuality is a part of that as well. So I think we're dealing with a doctrine of revelation, how God has revealed himself. This is why it comes from your, like the, the documentary that you had about Scripture and its role in the world. Um, a doctrine of creation, a doctrine of sin, a doctrine of fallenness, a doctrine of sanctification. We've had on all of these things today, so it's so important for us to keep thinking about this. And in, in uh, Wesley Biblical Seminary, we're going to be doing something here in February, bringing together a conference. Steve is going to be a part of this. From the philosophical side, we have Robert Gagnon coming, Christopher West. Uh, I'm going to leave people out, but about uh, 10 different scholars are coming to present on this question. God's gift of human sexuality, Christian dogma, or mere opinion. Now this, I think this is another level. Like, are we willing to say that divergence from this tradition 
is outside of the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And I, that's another, and you're going to have to just come back or sign up for that course when we have it. Our thanks for you all coming. MD, thanks for coming down from Tupelo today. We're really thankful for your work, your documentary work, and your video work, but also this book. And I encourage people to go out and find it and the Prodigal Prayer Guide, which you didn't write, but it's from AFA. So our thanks to you, Buddy Smith, and all the people at AFA for the great work that you're doing. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. Yes, I admire people who will strap on the hard things to address. Yeah. So I admire you. Thank you. So this has been the Thinking is Good for You podcast and the More to Story podcast. Thanks for coming along. If you wouldn't mind liking this, leaving a review, for whatever it does, it just makes the Facebook world, and we're not trying to accommodate them too much, and all those type of people on Apple, iTunes, and that type of Apple podcast, it highlights what we're doing. So we'd love it if you'd leave a review for this, and thanks for checking this out. God bless you all. <laughs>